today's episode is brought to you by Iris. 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 Ah! This isn't happening. I can't go on like this. What? What am I podcasting for? (laughs) Hello. And welcome to the anniversary episode of What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series. From Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the hundred plus games in between as I can. Today's episode is Mega Man X4. Some of you may be very curious about how this episode just started. You may be wondering what that had to do with literally anything. This is the game that ended up inspiring the name of this podcast, and you'll find out why in a little bit. Mega Man X4 was released for the PlayStation and Saturn in 1997, and the PC a year later. By and large, the versions are identical in pretty much every way that matters. Unlike Mega Man 8 and Mega Man X3, the soundtracks are going to be the same. The only real difference is that... The PC version added an easy mode, which, like Mega Man 2's easy mode, literally just halves the damage you take, and that's about it. Unlike Mega Man 2, this game doesn't really have a whole lot of platforming difficulty, minus a couple very specific sections, so taking only half damage actually does make this game drastically easier. X4 is the first X game that was designed to be played off of a CD as opposed to traditional, like, cartridge ROM limitations on the SNES. This means that, visually, the game took advantage of this from the start. I will say that this game is actually fantastic looking to this day. All the character models are very nicely done, like, all the background detail is really, really nice to look at. Like, the stages look great in this game. And there are a few cases where the game takes advantage of no longer being limited by sprite size limitations and stuff from the SNES to do, like, a larger sweeping opponents and, like, bigger foes. Though not as, not as often as I'd like, and sometimes a disappointment in that regard, but we'll come back to that. As far as your controls for X in this game go, it's mostly the same as we've seen before. Typical sliding, charge shot, yada, yada. One thing that is different from previous X games is that they brought back Mega Man 8's factor of allowing you to use separate buttons for your X-Buster and your special weapons. One thing that sadly was not kept from Mega Man 8 is that the projectile limit for your weapons is kept in place. You still can't swap weapons while you already have one weapon on the screen, and you have to wait for it to leave until you can fire it again. And I usually cover this stuff in weapons. I'm just mentioning it here because it was kind of a disappointment. We are out of the technical range of necessitating that kind of limitation, and it honestly felt really good in Mega Man 8 to be able to hot-swap weapons without having to wait for a weapon to, like, vanish off the edge of the screen or whatever. Anyway, the The biggest change that's relevant to X immediately in this game is that we have changed away from four sub-tanks and instead moved to two sub-tanks and a weapon energy tank, which is really dumb for reasons I will get back to, I promise. But that's the changes for X. The biggest change for Mega Man X4 is that we no longer only have to play as X. And 
I mean, yes, we could call in Zero briefly during X3, and he could do certain things, but not really fight the bosses or anything. In X4, when you start the game, you have a choice between playing as X and Zero. Much like in Mega Man and Base, you had a choice between two heroes there. Mega Man and Base came out after this game did. I've specifically held off on playing this game until the anniversary because it's it's a special event. So I will say straight up, I don't think this is quite as well implemented. That said, Zero is fleshed out into his own full character. His movement, dashing and jumping, is basically identical to X's. The big difference is that instead of having the X-Buster, he has the Z-Saber, which is now a dedicated melee-only weapon. It tends to do more damage than the X-Buster does. Oftentimes, many of its strikes can end up delivering multiple hits. That might be why it's stronger, really. But for the most part, you have, like, a three-hit combo on the ground, a slash you do on the wall, and a slash you do in the air. As you defeat different bosses, Zero gains additional moves. These are not the traditional X weapons, and they aren't even necessarily really all that linked to the boss in question who gave them. Only one of them actually has a weapon energy gauge, and that gets tied to its own special button. All the rest of them you can perform basically infinitely. Some of them aren't even, like, special attacks, they're just additional properties. We'll give some quick coverage to that later. The point is, Zero is a fairly different character from X by virtue of the fact that you ditch the entirety of a weapon ammunition system, but in return, you are limited and you have to fight up close. Also, while Zero can still get energy tanks and sub-tanks and stuff, he does not get any form of body armor upgrades or any other, like, permanent upgrades like that other than what he gets from bosses, which means you don't have to search stages as much, but also means that for late game, Zero never gets the double defense that X does and that the game kind of expects. I'm going to leave it at that, and we'll jump into how this game kicks off. At the start of X4, we are introduced to the Repliforce. The Repliforce is like an independent Reploid army. They generally are like peacekeeping robots that are taking care of their own affairs. Depending on which character you start as, since the two characters do get different cutscenes, you will either see the leader of the Repliforce in a meeting with a mysterious cloaked figure with red face markings that are clearly not Sigma's markings. No, of course not. If you're starting a Zero, on the other hand, you get some kind of interesting little tidbits that we'll come back to later of Zero having, like, nightmares of attacking other Reploids in what is the obvious silhouette of Dr. Wily looming over his capsule while he's asleep and stuff. But whichever opening setting the scene cutscene we get, X or Zero are quickly dispatched to the Sky Lagoon, which serves as our opening stage. stage, I have to say, this game kind of ditches a lot of the tutorializing structure that was present in the previous three games of trying to deliberately teach you the mechanics. Like, it's pretty visible at this point. It's not a hard tutorial stage or anything. The biggest contrast I have is Mega Man and Base, which came out shortly after, and that opening stage expected that you knew what you were doing already. This one is still pretty simple. It does give us a good chance to enjoy the visuals of the stage. There's some bits of the stage that, like, shift massively over the course of the stage. We also get attacked 
by the boss of the stage partway through, and you can choose to just run from him, or you can fight him, which is kind of neat. Interestingly, we also see another small adjustment they made that's really nice, which is that mid-bosses in this game actually display their health bars like they're a full-on boss. It's about goddamn time. Mostly, though, the focus of the stage is actually the event that happens partway through, which is that we come to the core of the Sky Lagoon, which is this floating base city, and we find out that the engine's already in the process of blowing up. There's a member of the Repla Force there named Magma Dragoon that we recognize, apparently, and who says, hey, it's too late, we've just got to get out of here. And then we hit a load screen and we go to the second half of the opening stage. I mention the load screen specifically because... In this game, every single stage has two halves to it marked by a load screen. And if you game over and you hit continue after this load screen, you get sent back not to the beginning of the whole stage, but only back to the load screen. There's usually like a checkpoint in each half of the stage as well, so this game is actually really not very punishing at all, because at worst you get sent back to the halfway mark. The other thing to note is that whenever this load screen happens, all of your life energy and weapon energy and everything short of your sub-tanks gets completely refilled. Which is why I was like, hey, them giving you a weapon tank is kind of dumb, because it is kind of dumb. I'm pretty sure you also refill in this game whenever you die, too. Like, it's not even like, oh, yeah, you lost a couple times on the boss and now you're out of weapon energy. No, that doesn't happen in this game. You died on the boss and your weapon energy bar is full. And I just wanted to point that out because I'm going to remark at a couple points that you hit a load screen and then immediately after the load screen there's like health and weapon drops just sitting on the ground. Anyway, we were in the tutorial stage and I wasn't ranting. The second half of the tutorial stage is in the now-destroyed city that was underneath the Sky Lagoon. If you are playing as Zero, here you will meet and rescue an injured reploid named Iris, a young girl who is apparently the sister of a Repliforce commander named Colonel. Yeah, literally, the dude's rank is literally his name, alright. We fight a large maverick robot, which is this giant flying wolf thing. It's actually really, really easy. It's a giant target. Regardless of who you're playing, afterwards we meet Colonel face-to-face. -face. And both X and Zero are like, okay, hold on. Magma Dragoon was here. Colonel, you're here. Repliforce wasn't really supposed to be in this area. A ton of people just died. People are going to want answers. We need you to drop your weapons and come with us. We don't think you did it, but we have to know what's going on. And Colonel just immediately takes the prideful response of like, oh, the Repliforce don't bow to anybody. And X and Zero warn him like, hey, if you do this, you're going to be labeled as Mavericks. And that's exactly what proceeds to happen in the story. As a result of the Sky Lagoon falling, the Repliforce, who refused to cooperate with the investigation, are labeled Mavericks en masse. This prompts General of the Repliforce, yeah, his name is General, to make a declaration that the Repliforce is going independent. They're going to cut out their own nation into the world, and it will be a land for Reploids. I have to say, I do like the story actually digging into the idea of being labeled Maverick. Yeah, we know that the Sigma virus makes Reploids go Maverick, but we didn't know about the Sigma virus as the cause of it until, like, later games in the series. So the idea that, like, any Reploid can become a Maverick, and it's just, oh, they're an obstacle to society now, they're dangerous to people, so they have to go, it's kind of neat that this game digs into it. Regardless of what we do, X and Zero return to Maverick Hunter HQ. There they are greeted by 
what is kind of their first navigator. Basically, somebody standing at the stage select and occasionally chiming in with some words of advice or commenting on the situation. For Zero, this is Iris, whom we rescued. Iris is Colonel's sister. She is not happy that we have to fight, but she's still going to assist Zero because she's like, hey, you need to stop my brother. X, meanwhile, gets a new buddy named Double, who's just this, like, jovial, round, golden-tinted robot. Nothing terribly remarkable about him. And then we get our stage select proper. Our first stage here is Web Spider Stage in the Jungle, which is absolutely gorgeous. It's a waterfall set stage that's like feels like you're constantly running alongside a river and stuff. And there's like a screen where there's falling logs we jump on, and there's a screen where using a fire weapon from another boss is able to like bust open a couple slight shortcuts, and that's it. It's a decent length and stuff. Please understand, I just described like half the stages in this game. Every stage has like a couple of features in it, but something about the level design in this game is like really basic and limiting. And maybe it's the fact that there's almost like no wide open areas to explore in the way that even like X3 still did it. Linear levels are a tradition of Mega Man, but something in X4's design just feels really basic a lot of the time. Oh, and I guess our leg parts for X are in this stage. We get the ability to air dash, or we can, instead of air dashing, hover in this game, which lets us just maintain our height and float a little bit left or right. Just a different kind of aerial mobility that is a little bit more controlled. But that's that's literally it for the first stage. As for the boss himself, Web Spider spends half the fight dropping down from the top of the screen, firing a homing web at us, and then running back up. After the halfway mark, he deploys some webs in the center of the screen and just stays down and crawls around randomly on them, occasionally throwing out spiders that'll run along the ground at us or throwing more homing webs. One thing that is interesting about the bosses in this game is most of them actually have pattern changes once you drop them below half HP, or there's like attacks that will become more common that are more dangerous, use more frequently as their HP drops. Another thing to note about the bosses while I'm just covering this whole game at once, other than Web Spider, interestingly enough, pretty much every boss in this game gets completely dunked on by their weakness weapon from X. This isn't quite the case with Zero as much. It does the thing, Mega Man 7 style, the boss gets caught in an animation when you hit them with their weakness, and then they do a completely predictable action afterwards. You know, the thing that held Mega Man 7's bosses off from being great, which is a shame because many of the bosses in this game are actually really neat, but X can dunk on them. Anyway, next stage, Cyber Peacock. Set in cyberspace, this stage does actually have a little bit more openness to it, and it has a gimmick where in the first half of the stage, you are basically running each section as a time trial, and if you reach the end of that section fast enough, you will be put into an extra room that contains heart tanks, sub-tanks, or in X's case, it's how you get his helmet upgrade, and once again, the function of that part has changed completely. In this game, X's helmet part gives him infinite weapon ammo for basic weapon attacks. This won't affect his ability to charge his attacks and the increased cost there, but X can literally use all of his special weapons infinitely in their base form in this game. Which we'll get into how that might actually have had unfortunate consequences in a little bit. The second half of Cyber Peacock's stage has buttons that literally flip the stage upside down. It is one of the neater stages in this game, I will give it that. 
Cyber Peacock has a very simple pattern of teleporting to where you are and then doing some localized attack. As long as you keep moving when he's not visible and like start running away and jumping up walls whenever he reappears, you're pretty good. The most dangerous is if he appears in the air and then he's going to start firing off some like really fast homing projectiles at you. And when I say fast, I mean if you try to wall jump away from them, you won't actually be fast enough. So he can be a bit of a tricky boss. But if you get his weakness weapon from Magma Dragoon, it instantly like causes him to teleport away whenever you hit him with it, and it makes the fight a joke. Next up is the Air Force stage with Storm Eagle. Wait, no. Okay, Storm Owl. First off, surprised to see them reuse an adjective this early. The Air Force stage is neat in theory in that it is set atop a collection of like moving smaller ships you have to jump between. In practice, this does not actually add that much interesting in platforming or anything to it. There are like a couple ships that you can either jump across them or you can shoot them down so they stop shooting at you. There is like a flying variant of a ride armor, but it's still an exceptionally linear stage that is less platforming oriented than it sounds like it would be when I say that, oh, you're jumping across airships. Near the end of the stage, there is the toughest platforming challenge in the game if you are X. You can use one of the weapons to, like, scale a wall of spikes that you're not supposed to be able to, and you can find the weapon upgrade capsule there. This one is interesting in that you have an option of two different capsules and can come back and switch later. One of them allows you to overcharge your shot so it does a little bit more damage and also leaves behind a lingering AoE burst that will do continuous damage, which is great against regular enemies, but not so great against bosses because of invincibility frames. The other one does not allow you to overcharge your buster, but rather when you start charging up your buster, you will store up to four separate charge shots that you can then fire just by pressing the button once, which is actually a really cool take on buster upgrading, and I like it a lot. Whichever one you get, they also unlock the ability for you to charge up your weapons and get the alternate functions that way. The boss of the stage is Storm Owl, who is not nearly as zippy as Storm Eagle was, but he does like to fly off and then like slowly fly back in from a random orientation. He has a lot of different kinds of projectiles he can throw at you. He can generate cyclones off of the ground that you have to really be watching for him to do it once his health drops below half because it comes out really quick. In order to assist you in fighting him, there's a platform halfway up the screen that you can jump on. This platform is actually positioned at just a height that, like, it was probably necessary to put it at that height so you could jump over stuff while under it, but also it's actually kind of tough to wall jump off of it successfully because you just barely catch the corner and it's not quite where it looks like it is, and uh, it makes the fight unnecessarily tougher than it needs to be, and once again, if you're not using weaknesses, this is actually a fairly tough fight. The fourth stage is Magma Dragoon's Volcano. The first half of the stage has literally no enemies, and it's just you dodging through, like, falling boulders and magma jets and stuff. The second half, you get to jump into a ride armor and fight things. If you bring a certain weapon you can charge up here, you can get the armor upgrade. In this game, it is a defense boost for X and also enables the Nova Strike. This attack has its own dedicated button, so you don't have to switch to it, and it charges up in the background as you take damage, kind of like the Giga attack in X2, but what it is is just a very high damage forward dash attack that makes you invincible during it. You can use it for platforming, 
if you want, just as much as you can use it for, like, actually attacking. It's just really neat. Magma Dragoon himself, you fight him with magma pits on either side. It is possible to get into Magma Dragoon's fight with the wide armor and just have a ton of health to just, like, slap him down with an energy sword, which is kind of a neat thing. Otherwise, you'll have to actually fight him, and Magma Dragoon himself has a variety of different attacks. He fights you like he's a fighting game character. Most of his attacks are literally Hadoukens and Shoryukens, you know, fireballs and flame uppercuts, and he literally shouts them out while he does them. But otherwise, he just has, like, dive kicks and, like, flame breath and... Just, he feels like a fighting game character as a boss. It's kind of neat. And you might be noticing, yes, we're fighting Magma Dragoon. He was the dude that we saw at the engine of the Sky Lagoon, which is the whole inciting incident for all this nonsense. Something really cool I'm going to point out before we move on to the second half of the stages is that three of the bosses in this game, Magma Dragoon included, have a different boss health icon than other bosses do. Most of the bosses in this game have the Repliforces, like, emblem on them. But Magma Dragoon has... The Maverick emblem, the same emblem from the first three games. Which, once you notice that, now you realize, okay, the Repliforce may in fact be innocent of these actions, they might in fact not be Mavericks, and this whole thing was incited very deliberately by actual Mavericks, actual allies of Sigma. Just kind of a neat thing to notice. Once you've cleared four stages, Colonel issues a challenge to you. If you're on Zero's route, Iris will actually intervene in a cutscene and you do not have to do the fight. It's just a little bit of story stuff as she asks the two of you not to fight. If you're on X's side, however, you have to fight the Colonel here. Fortunately, like most mid-game bosses that they've made you fight, he's got a fairly simple pattern. He can teleport and then slash at you, which you need to already be moving and dash jumping to avoid. You can't try to do it reactively, but you can see the attack coming from how he like vanishes and stuff. Or he can hang out at a wall and fire some sword waves at you, which if you realize they're coming, they're not that bad. He's actually a pretty simple boss with extremely simple patterns. Okay, second half of the game, Jet Stingray. Jet Singeri's Sage at the Marine Base is... Uh, God, this stage is a mess. This is a speeder bike stage. You're just in a very fast auto-scrolling section where you just have a buster shot regardless of which character you're playing as, and you're just trying to avoid like getting crushed against the left of the screen or falling in a pit. You're going to take some damage, you can try to reduce it, and I'm pretty sure a lot of it is not actually dodgeable, but it doesn't really matter because halfway through the stage is a load screen that refills your HP, and after you're done the stage, there's a full health refill right before the boss, so they knew what they were doing. I don't like this stage at all. It just doesn't feel good to play. It's like half too fast to realistically... Like, you can still react to it, but a lot of the stuff in it just isn't dodgeable. The one neat thing about it is that in the second half of the stage, Jet Stingray does fly around in the background and harass us with projectiles as part of the stage decor. As for the actual fight with him, mostly he attacks by doing either dive attacks that like sweep across the screen, or he summons a bunch of little stingrays that will like swim around on the bottom of the screen, and if we don't take them out early, they're going to become a bit of an obstacle. But if you can stay on top of taking those out, Jet Stingray himself is actually not that big of a deal. 
Next up, the Biolab with Split Mushroom. This one kind of at least makes it less just left to right and has some like vertical segments and stuff. There's some neat kind of tricks to the opening segment where it looks like you're climbing up a staircase that's like spiraling around and stuff, but realistically it's just a straight corridor in practice. This stage lacks specific segments that I want to like point out, but it is overall a fairly healthily varied stage that's pretty fun. The boss himself is actually really interesting. He alternates between modes where he throws, like, technicolor copies of himself as images at you, and then an alternate form where he kind of goes Gemini Man and creates a copy of himself, and they both bounce around the room and dash at you and so on and so forth. And unlike Gemini Man, only the actual original takes full damage, and once they land, the only way to tell them apart is by which one's actually getting, like, iframe reactions to your attacks. It's a neat evolution of Gemini Man's idea. Again, I like the boss fights in this game quite a bit. Next up is an intensely boring level, which is the military train level. Like, train levels should be fun. The military train is just a left-to-right segment that has almost nothing special going for it other than the flavoring. Occasionally, a robot will bust the link between the trains and you'll have to jump to the next one to avoid dying, but that's literally just jumping over a pit redressed a bit. There is a ride armor bit where you can punch open some of the entire cars, but even though it sounds like that should be cool, it doesn't change the fact it's just a flat left-to-right run with enemies. The boss fight for Slash Beast, he has a few different moves. Like, he can do diving attacks across the screen. He can, like, do flip kicks that cause shockwaves and stuff. Most of the time, though, what he does is just jump around a couple times really slowly and really easily to dodge. He is a hot joke, is X. He's a little tougher as Zero because his, like, crescent kick thing is actually really fast to come out and Zero needs to be in close to fight, so he has a hard time dodging it. But literally, if he just doesn't do it that much, Zero doesn't care. For a dude who is fast enough in his opening animation to run and catch up to the train you're on, Slash Beast is really slow in combat. The last stage is the best stage in this game, which is the snow base. This is actually a really well-fleshed-out stage. Very non-linear. There's a couple parts where you can take different paths through it. There's a whole bunch of different smaller gimmicks, like kind of a variant of Yoku blocks, but it's entire platforms. But instead of the platforms just like blinking in and out of existence, they will like fade in and then they will like start to crumble away. It's really nice. The second half involves us cutting through a maze of ice blocks using our weapons. There's a final corridor segment where if we don't defeat certain enemies fast enough, they will freeze the screen and add ice physics. It's just a really generally interesting and fun varied stage. There's even some fun background details, like during the mid-boss, you can see a frozen statue of Chill Penguin in the background just as a continuity thing, while you're fighting like an ice version of one of the bosses that was actually in X2. It's, it's a really well-done stage, and I wish all the stages in this game were as well-done as this one. The boss himself, by comparison, is kind of a joke again. He's the requisite really, really big boss that has, like, big slow slides across the room and doesn't really do much else. When his HP starts to drop, he'll try to, like, cover parts of the screen in icicles that are spiked that you'll have to clear out or take damage from as you're trying to run from his dashes and get to the far walls, but that's it. Before we get back to the story and the finale of this game, let's go tackle our weapons. So first, because I can do it much faster, 
Zero's weaponry. I won't go over every single individual move here, because honestly, the Zero moves that probably matter the most in this game are an actual proper aerial attack, which is like a spinning sword slash, and a flame uppercut. Most of the other moves Zero has are not really all that good. They might be just awkward to use, or like... They're just really, really slow to use. He does have his one attack, the Rakohoha, which uses the Nova Strike button, and is basically zero punching the ground and sending out a spread of projectiles in every direction. This does have an ammo limit of about four uses. It does very little damage. It's kind of disappointing. The thing I most feel like I actually need to mention when it comes to Zero's moveset from bosses is that two of his abilities aren't even attacks. They can't be used offensively. One of them allows him to cut down enemy bullets, and act as like an extra shield by attacking, except it doesn't cut down most of the projectiles in the game. I barely noticed it working. And the other one, well, okay, the second one I got that wrong. It doesn't actually come without an attack. It comes with a spinning attack, but it also enables you to double jump when you learn it. Zero does not get any form of like air dash or hover the way that X does in this game. Instead, he gets the ability to just straight up double jump, which is kind of nice. But honestly, most of these attacks aren't super well matched to the fights, there isn't much of a visual cue about which one's actually doing the most damage, and many of them don't even feel that great to use on bosses, because boss invincibility frames will kick in on the initial hit, and then the attack will still keep going, and you'll just hear clink 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 as just every additional frame, Zero just fails to actually deliver any additional damage. My favorite show of how much of a mess of Zero's weakness chart is, there is an attack that he does by dashing on the ground, and it's just a little shortcut that leads into his basic combo. That shortcut is strong against one specific boss. That boss is Web Spider, who spends 98% of his time too high up on the screen to actually be hit with it. The thing that interestingly does the most damage to most bosses' zero fights is something referred to as Saber Dash Cancelling, where after using the first or second hit, you do like the slightest little dash that you barely even move on, and this resets his animation so that you can reuse the first two hits of his combo, and only the third one actually procs invincibility frames. And that's not really an intended technique at all, I'm pretty sure. And I know there's some players who really like zero who will argue that like the dash cancelling skill is part of the fun of playing Zero, and maybe it is. I just have to say, Zero's moveset in this game didn't really impress me. Zero in general in this game didn't really impress me. Despite the fact that it feels like he has the more significant story stuff going on in this game, in his version of the story, uh, he does not feel like the game was well designed around him. Like, I am just gonna get this off my chest right now. Mega Man and Base, you could tell the game was designed around both of them, and the levels were designed to give each of them separate challenges. X4 was designed around X, and then they added Zero. That's genuinely how the game feels. Speaking of designed around X, let's go to the weapons. One thing they had to do for Zero is that because all of Zero's abilities are tied to using specific inputs as opposed to like manually selecting different specials, they had to have a way to show you what the input was. So they went back to Mega Man 7 style text explanation for weapons in this game as opposed to demonstrations. Anyway. X's Arsenal. Worst weapon in the game I'm giving to the Ground Hunter. This is a fairly standard gravity-affected ground-traveling projectile that does climb walls, but it's a really standard weapon compared to most of the game's arsenal. Its charge shot, as far as I could tell, 
is literally just a charged buster shot. It's not even as large. It doesn't seem to have any special properties. I have no idea why it exists. This weapon does like no damage and does almost nothing your basic buster doesn't do to begin with because the ground tracking property doesn't really help you anywhere in this game. So whatever. It's only slightly worse than the Twin Slashers, which fires a pair of shots that are at diagonal angles up and down instead of just straight forwards. This would be a nice weapon for coverage if it did any goddamn damage whatsoever. It takes more shots to kill things with this weapon than it does your regular Mega Buster most of the time, and that's terrible. The charge shot on it, at least, is actually fairly decent. It is a very wide shotgun spread that actually does respectable damage, but you only get a handful of uses out of it. doesn't really do that much special. Next up, the Double Cyclone, which fires a pair of projectiles, one on either side, that like float upwards in an arc. If they hit, they linger a little bit and deal repeated damage, so you would think they wouldn't be that bad. This is kind of like the springs in Mega Man 7, where you're never really surrounded in this game. You don't really need that benefit. It means that you just have to wait for the one that fired off behind you to vanish off the screen before you can fire it again. If you charge it up, it is Storm Eagle's Tornado from X1, which is really good. But again, I just don't like charged special weapons for general use in the X games because you get barely any use of them. Even with the number of weapon recharges that you get in this game and stuff. I don't know, maybe that's a thing I personally need to get over because some of the charge weapons in this game aren't that bad. But you can't charge like your basic buster and the special weapon at the same time. You're charging up one or the other in advance. I Anyway. Next up, the awkwardness of of the Frost Tower. This spawns a large icicle right over Mega Man's position that sticks around for quite a while and admittedly does deal a lot of damage, but you have to be right up in something's face in order to hit with it. If you charge it up, it does deal like an increasingly large spread of giant icicle drops over your head, which, again, fairly good charge weapon, fairly mediocre base weapon. Next up, one of the more creative weapons in this game is the aiming laser. This thing puts out like a reticle that you move up and down in like an arc in front of you, and once you've caught something with this reticle, it doesn't automatically attack them, but rather leaves a lock-on on them, and then when you press the fire button, every enemy on the screen that has this lock-on gets hit for a couple seconds with just this continuous laser. It's a really neat idea for a weapon, actually, and the ammo's super efficient, and it does a decent amount of damage. I just found it to be kind of awkward to use accurately. Like, it's a lot of fidgeting around for a weapon that isn't necessarily that much better, than other weapons, and if anything gets too close to you, the reticle is at a fixed distance away from you, so it can just completely fail to catch things that are too close to you. Charging it up gets rid of the reticle and just gives you an aimable, adjustable laser that you're firing for a few seconds, which is kind of neat, but honestly might just be worse than the original, because it's hard to position that laser exactly to hang over an enemy anyway. Another unique weapon is the Soul Body. This creates a phantom copy of X about three steps in front of him that stays in that location relative to X as you move around, so it just barrels through enemies while you walk forward. If you charge it up, it deploys a copy of X that you can then run around with, and your original body just goes completely invincible during that time, but you can't really go too far because you will snap back to your original body, and you can only use your basic buster during that time, so eh. The Rising Fire is probably the most practical and useful weapon in this game. Literally all it does is just shoot a fireball directly over X's head. That said, an attack that goes directly vertical tends to be fairly useful in the X games where you do a lot of climbing. And since you can equip both this and still 
use your buster. You have this for enemies overhead, and you have your buster for enemies in front of you, and that covers mostly every angle you're ever going to get attacked from in this game. Its charge attack is also a full-on Shoryuken, which, interestingly, doesn't inflict invincibility frames on anything the way other weapons do. So there's many bosses in this game that if you hit them with a Shoryuken, tends to just, like, explode them. It's overall actually a good weapon that has both a good basic function and a good charge function. I'm giving the best weapon in this game, though, not to necessarily the best weapon, but the most interesting weapon, which is the lightning web. It's a straightforward shot that deploys an electric web after a certain distance. This electric web can deal continuous damage to enemies. If it's charged up, it spreads into like a wide, like almost screen-sized series of webs that deal continuous damage, so it's not terrible at hurting things. But the real kicker of the lightning web is that it is actually, when fired uncharged, a wall, and that means that X can jump onto it and then jump off of it and use it for platforming. This might not actually be the most powerful weapon in the game, and so I probably shouldn't have it in first, but I think it's by far one of the more creative ones. I like the weapons that are used in interesting utility ways, like the Tengu Tornado whatever from 8 that I can't remember the exact name of, the Frost Tower from Mega Man and Base. This is in that vein, and I really like it. Overall, X's arsenal in this game has some interesting tools in it. I don't hate it, but I find a lot of its weapons do not actually do enough damage to really need them over the Mega Buster, and the really linear stage design does not help either. When you are just going left to right and enemies are in front of you left to right, why not just use your Buster, you know? Especially with the Buster upgrades, you also don't really get many enemies that are so burly you need high damage weapons or anything, so it's all just kind of unfortunate. Anyway, the Repliforce has decided, screw this planet, if you don't want us, we're going to space, and we have to go stop them because their grand plan for going to space apparently involves a super weapon. Hmm. Suddenly the Repliforce don't seem so innocent. Okay, the spaceport stage and then the two final weapon stages that make up the finale of this game are literally just like a room with some enemy spam, and I mean enemy spam, like Jesus Christ, it's like two enemies just repeated over and over again, and then a boss fight, and then either a load screen and you do that again, or it's just time to move on to the next stage entirely. There is like one of these that is a platforming challenge, and that's like it. These are genuinely some of the most boring stages I have seen. Like, congratulations, X1, I've found a worse fortress. <laughs> So let's just talk about our bosses. First off, we fight the Colonel. He is basically the same as an X's fight. He has learned a couple new moves that he can weave in, including like generating lightning sparks that turn into lightning bolts, but they have fixed positions. He's still really easy as X, Zero, especially with Zero not having had practice on an easier version of him earlier in the game. Zero is going to find this fight notably more difficult, but it's still very, very learnable and very predictable and stuff. You just kind of have to not get greedy as Zero. Then it's time to go out to space and go to the final weapon. Whether you're X or Zero, you'll notice that your partner has vanished. In fact, Double gets a whole cutscene where he gets told like, hey, stop them from going to space by a mysterious voice. 
And so Double transforms and just slaughters a whole bunch of the Maverick Hunters. And as you can expect, this means that our Navigators are the next boss fights of the game. If you're playing as X, you will fight Double here. He really only has like two attacks, one of which is a lingering projectile attack that you just kind of have to respect, and the other is a series of dashes that is like pretty easy to dodge once you get used to it, because it comes in a very specific pattern. He is not hard. On Zero's route, you will find Iris, who puts herself inside of a giant mech, apparently using the power of Colonel's control chip or something, is what I've been reading. There's no indication in-game that that's what's going on. Iris's mech is invincible. Whenever you hit it, it bounces back a bit and a couple like random parts fly off and start homing in on you and you will need to take those out. After hitting her a few times, however, the actual core will fly out and the robot will still keep moving, but this like crystal core is the thing that you actually need to damage in order to defeat the mech, and it just slowly homes in on you most of the time. It is most vulnerable when Iris decides to fire like a large laser beam attack at you, which has a gigantic warning on it. The core will fly down to the bottom of the screen and try to catch you with a vertical one, and it gives you a lot of time to hit it. As long as you don't try to get too aggressive and realize what you actually need to fight, Iris will go down pretty quick. And when Iris goes down, we get probably one of the most famous bits of voice acting in Mega Man history as Zero unfortunately watches a critically injured Iris die in front of him, and ends up accidentally inspiring the name of this podcast. Iris, there's no world just for Reploid. It's only a fantasy. Yes, I know, but I wanted to believe it. I wanted to live in a world where only Reploids exist with you. Iris! Oh. Iris! 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 Ah! No, this isn't happening! There's no reason for me to go on! What? What am I fighting for? And that is why this had to be saved for the anniversary episode. Anyway, the stage isn't over. Next up, we have the fight with General. General is gigantic. He is like as tall as the screen is, but he is not animated. This is what I mentioned earlier about being disappointed by certain parts and feeling like some things were just not quite finished. General is literally just a gigantic body that just slides lazily across the screen at you. On occasion, he might have like a projectile attack or like he'll throw out his hands and Zero can like jump onto them to try to get close to him, although it's really risky because there's other projectiles going on. This fight really doesn't feel like it was designed with Zero in mind. Anyway, General's really lazy of a boss and really boring and very, very slow to do with Zero because you need to play it safe. When we defeat General, though, he notes that, hey, something's wrong. Like, I don't have control of this weapon anymore. I didn't actually want to use it. I just wanted to use it as like a deterrent, but somebody's actually hijacked it and you need to go stop them. Then we have our boss gauntlet, because, you know, that's how it do. And then we proceed forward and the Grim Reaper appears in front of us. And by the Grim Reaper, I actually mean Sigma. He's being ominous and flying around in a Grim Reaper cloak with a scythe, because he's just extra like that. We get our load screen, so, you know, we get a checkpoint. Then we immediately have health and weapon drops. Which, I mean, I know they're for a sub-tank, but come on, you have everything refilling constantly anyway. It just feels 
weird. But then we kind of have our final boss fight. If we're Zero at this point, we do get a little bit more story where we actually get to see Sigma's side of Zero's nightmares, which was actually Sigma's time as a Maverick Hunter going into this like lab where they've excavated this Reploid who has just killed a whole bunch of people, and basically a feral Maverick Berserk Zero and a Maverick Hunter Sigma get into a fight. Sigma ends up breaking part of Zero's visor, which it turns out has something to do with Wily and is kind of why Zero may have been Berserk, and might also be when Sigma got infected. I don't know. We'll probably come back to this plot point in the future with more detail, or at least I hope we will. But Zero does manage to tear off Sigma's arm in the process, and this is basically how Zero woke up and how he ended up as part of the Maverick Hunters, as Sigma brought him back and stuff. But Sigma kind of does a bit of like, hey, you know, you're a maverick through and through and you always were, and Zero's like, yeah, but I don't like you, so get dunked. Anyway, it's time to fight our final bosses. First off, Reaper Sigma shows up and teleports randomly around the top of the room, either firing various projectiles, kind of like a Wily capsule, or doing a large sweeping attack with his scythe. Hitting him with Magma Dragoon's weapon dunks on him, especially the Shoryuken as X takes away like half of his HP in a single shot. It's kind of hilarious. Then Sigma throws off the cloak, and we get to fight more traditional grounded Sigma, who is running around with a hammer. He actually fights in a very specific loop of attacks. He'll jump up and throw his hammer around half of the arena, and then he'll jump up again and throw his hammer directly at you, and based on whether the hammer lands on the floor or against a wall will change what his follow-up attack is. If you get him to attack the wall, he runs over to like a corner of the room and fires lasers across the room, and it looks like it should be impossible to dodge, because the hammer on the far wall is like electrifying the wall, but you can literally just go and jump behind him, and literally just stand behind him and wail on him, even though it looks like he's too big for you to do that safely? It's kind of funny. We defeat him, the floor drops out below us, we get to pick up a little bit of healing, and then we have phase 3, which is best described as what the f- Basically, this boss is like five different parts that phase in and out of existence and do different attacks. Three parts are these different floating blocky sigma heads that are either attacking you or serving as like obstacles around the arena. The other two are the actual main bodies of sigma that we need to destroy in order to end this fight. One of them is like a giant robot gunner in the corner that has this giant laser beam cannon that it fires in a couple different patterns, and creepily has Sigma's face on top of its helmet. Not as like its faceplate, but literally sitting on top of its helmet. The other one, which is also creepy, appears in the opposite corner at the bottom, and is just this giant Sigma head that like tries to pull you in and eat you, or generates winds and tries to blow you away. This is like the one boss fight in this game where I can say Zero has like a vastly easier time. Because he can just absolutely dunk on the robot gunner with the flame uppercut ability, the Ryu engine. Did I even mention that all of Zero's abilities, just the names aren't translated, they're just romanized? Just to make them sound cooler, I guess? Because Ryu engine sounds fancier to English listeners than dragon uppercut, or rising dragon, or whatever that translates to. 
Anyway, that skill absolutely dunks on the gunner, Sigma. It will, like, defeat him in one phase, no problem. X, meanwhile, has to use either charge shots or very specific weapons that are not exactly ideal. Anyway, we deal with this, like, I, I don't even understand what this boss is supposed to be other than, like, I don't know, maybe Sigma took over, like, the defense systems or something because he's a virus. But Sigma laughs at us because, like, hey, you may have defeated me again, but I've already aimed the weapon at Earth and it's already charging up, so have fun, Earth is done. GG. So we run to the core of the weapon and we find General, who is floating there, still extremely damaged, and he's like, you know, my body's big enough that if I throw myself into the core and self-destruct, it'll blow this whole weapon up, and that'll let me atone for my mistakes, because, you know, we let ourselves get manipulated, and that's that. Forgive my foolishness. And General throws himself into the core. The final weapon explodes, and our ending is set as X or Zero are flying back to Earth. If you are finishing the game as Zero, Zero has some memories of Wily creating him and killing the Reploids when he woke up and killing Iris and stuff, and just kind of laments, like, is every Reploid destined to go Maverick? Like, do we really have a choice? Even though I'm not a Maverick anymore, I'm still responsible for Iris's death. And we get a text scroll that says, like, Zero's past continues to haunt him, and he knows it is one day his role to defeat his friend. His decision will lead the two to tragedy, and that future is looming soon. Which, you know, they keep informing us that that's apparently destiny. And, I mean, yes, Dr. Light and Dr. Wily's creations, yada yada, but it feels like a real informed attribute. As for X's version, X is lamenting the fact that war ends up causing Reploids to die. Surprise! And X actually starts to worry about, like, wait, what if I someday go Maverick? What if it's me that's the bad guy at some point in the future? So he actually calls up Zero, and they have this really, like, cliche, lovey-dovey, like, listen, if I ever go Maverick, you have to stop me, and Zero's like, don't say such absolute dumb things, just get back to base already. Listen, I haven't gotten into it, I think I might have kept a blooper that mentioned it, but, like... I mean, yes, already in the endings they were watching sunsets together and stuff, but this scene in particular has a real, like, X-Zero, just shippy thing going on, which, man, that was a whole part of fandom that I never really quite got when I was a kid, interestingly. Like, it didn't click until I was older that I'm like, oh, man, these two really did kind of have a thing. But that's it. That's X-4. You can roll credits. So before I get into my final coverage of things, there is one more thing I want to talk about a bit, which is the Ultimate Armor and Black Zero. If you enter specific codes on the character select screen, you can trigger slight differences in X and Zero. In Zero's case, this just turns his armor black. Black Zero has literally no effect on the gameplay. If you do it as X, you get a slight palette difference. But once you get to your first capsule, Dr. Light will actually give you the ultimate armor instead, which is every piece of armor immediately, and has infinite uses of the Nova attack. You can't, like, use it to just fly infinitely through the air. You do have to land again. But you essentially get an entire second dash that is vastly stronger than any weapon and can be used as much as you want. So if you want to cheat mode through the game, there you go. Keep in mind... This was locked off behind a cheat code, and second off, while X actually has 
interesting implications and changes to his gameplay because of the ultimate armor, Black Zero was cosmetic only. And that brings me to my main point. What did I think of this game? There are parts of this game which are good, but every single good part comes with a but. Half the stages are really good, but the other half are honestly really junk, especially the finale, which is propped up only by its bosses. The eight maiden stage boss fights are great, but they become non-fights with their weakness exploited, which isn't fun. The story's trying neat stuff, with Sigma being manipulative and the conflict putting our protagonists in more of a gray light as opposed to obviously heroic, but other elements like Iris's seeming sudden love affair with Zero and Double's entire existence come out of seemingly nowhere and lack weight as a result. You know, the same way that the X Games keep dropping the line, X and Zero will fight someday, it's destined, we promise you guys this is important, as a goddamn line in the credits and not actually doing anything with it in the story. The weapons for X in this game are cool, but you can forget you have them except for bosses and never suffer for it because they're not really that useful or good. And Zero. The idea of playing an entire game of Zero is really cool, but he oftentimes feels like he's an afterthought. Some bosses feel like junk with him, especially General, who's already junk, but wow, that boss does not feel good as Zero. But also things like, he doesn't get the armor upgrade that late game is kind of balanced around for X. He doesn't have a terribly interesting moveset in this game. There's everything I was just saying about Black Zero, who is a neat Easter egg, since yeah, it's his colors from the fake copy in X2, but there's no gameplay impact to this thing, whereas X gets a drastic change in his gameplay, and he isn't even as refined or smooth to play as I want to say I remember him being in later games. And listen, I know Mega Man and Base came out a year later and probably learned from this, but something that was important about Mega Man and Base is that both of them are actually still fairly similar characters. They have significant differences between them, but they still fight as ranged characters. They still have access to the same special weapons, and it allowed them to design the entire game around a shared kit with small differences that push the characters in different ways. This was trying to design a game around two different characters simultaneously. I feel like it lacks some of the inspiration and creativity this game should have had. This game has a really high reputation. Some argue it's one of the best Mega Man games ever made. I was really hoping, especially as I saved it for the anniversary episode, that I would come to see that because I didn't remember this game at all. I didn't remember if I liked it or didn't like it, and the answer is, is I just think it's okay. It's in a tier above X3, but it's just okay to me. On the flip side, much better than okay, is the game's soundtrack. The music in X4 is really, really nice. It's using the full range of instrumentation. It is a, you know, a CD game. It can do, like, full depth of sound. It's actually paying attention to the fact that it has to loop its internal tracks, and, like, it still is doing it, but it's less noticeable the way it's designed. But also, like, all of its variety and instrumentation, by and large, still sounds at home in Mega Man. It still sounds like X music. 
Just X4 soundtrack as a whole is really good, and here's three tracks I wanted to highlight. First up is Web Spider stage, the jungle stage. As you would expect of a jungle stage, it has a really nice and cool take on jungle beats with like a lot of rhythm driving it, but with just this like little touch of electronic sound that makes it fit. And like rather than relying on electronic guitar, it's pulling on a bass guitar in the background to carry the actual like melodies and stuff. Really nice. second stage I wanted to highlight is Zero's opening stage. Each character has a different theme for the opening stage. Zero's stage, in quite simple, is exactly the classic style X rock you come to expect from the Mega Man X games. Finally, one track that is not an X track at all is the first half of Frost Walrus's stage. He's the only stage that has two different tracks, and the second half of the stage plays a more traditionally X track. The first half, however, is set in this big, open, mountainous area that is extremely non-technological, and there's a blizzard going on and stuff visibly, and so they went with like a largely ambient, very toned-down version of the track that plays later, and normally I would complain about X tracks going ambient, but this one nails the environmental work into the music so well. You'd think this is straight out of another series that is renowned for its music, and specifically its use of ambience in music, Donkey Kong Country. And I was just super impressed with this one.
Alright, that wraps up Mega Man X4. That wraps up our anniversary episode. Thank you all for sticking with the podcast through all of this. I have greatly appreciated all of you. All the people who have contacted me or just like even just given it a listen and said nothing, like, thanks. Normally, I would say we'll be back in two weeks with the next episode. I think I need a bit of a break. I've been doing this for a year straight, so there's a good chance that next time I would upload an episode, there just won't be one, but it should resume four weeks from now instead of two weeks with essentially season two, if you want to call it that. I don't know. I haven't yet picked out which 1999 Mega Man game I'm going to tackle, but we'll figure that out when we get there. Until then, if you want to drop a line about the show, as always, what am I podcasting for at gmail.com, on Twitter at what am I podcast for, as in the number four, waipf.podbean.com, if you want to come and get the RSS feed or anything. Thanks for listening. I've been Garlisle, and just remember, this was General's voice acting. My fate is sealed. I have no choice. I screwed it up. It's the origin of my goddamn podcast name, and I screwed up the intro. Actually, no. No, you know what? That's more in the spirit of it. It stays.